I keep my head down like when I'm formulating and trying to run my brand because it's easy to look at other brands and see what they're doing and feel like you have to play catch up and do exactly what they're doing. And a lot of this is like smoke and mirrors. Hey, my name is Felix Tian. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how this entrepreneur used her own traumatic experiences to build a business that helps others going through the same experience. How do you make sure that contractors and employees creating content for you are creating in a way that matches the voice and vision of your brand and the specific e-commerce challenges when running a luxury black-owned brand? Before our show, I wanted to let you know about Shopify Inbox. It's a brand new free sales channel you can set up right now in your admin. With Inbox, you can manage all the customer conversations from your store and social media in one place. Plus, chat anywhere, anytime using the mobile app or on the web. Most importantly, Inbox can help you close sales since 70% of Shopify Inbox conversations are with customers making a purchasing decision. Use the power of chat to turn browsers into buyers. For more information, visit shopify.com slash chat. Today, I'm joined by Dana Jackson from Beneath Your Mask. Beneath Your Mask is a black-owned brand that sells clean, sustainable, eco-lux skincare formulated to repair the damage to skin and hair caused by illness, medications, and environmental stressors. And we're starting in 2016 in Bayside, Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. Hi, Felix. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for being on here. Uh, so yeah, tell us more about the beginning of the business because uh, what you told us was that the business all started off with your own kind of personal story, your own personal struggle. So tell us more about, about how it all began. Sure. So my background was not in beauty um, <laughs> at all. I actually worked in the entertainment industry as a business manager. I was living in Atlanta at the time. Um, I'm originally from Chicago and I was experiencing cystic acne and I went to the dermatologist about it and they prescribed me a medication called Batrum. Once I started taking that medication, I would wake up and my eyes would be swollen shut. My joints would be locked closed. And the dermatologist said, we'll stop taking the medication. Those symptoms should go away. And three weeks and several steroid shots later, the symptoms did not go away. And so they said, you should get an ANA test. And um, it sounds like this could be lupus. And I got the ANA test. It came back positive. From there, I had to go get tested for lupus. And initially I was doing all this research, like, how is this happening? You know, how did, I, I didn't know anyone with lupus at the time. And there was this thing called drug and lupus. And so I thought that that must be what I had. And so when I went to the doctor to get my results, they were like, you know, you do have lupus. And I said, no, 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 I have drug induced. This will go away. And she was like, it won't. And so we went back and forth. And so somehow the doctor <laughs> agreed with me, which is ridiculous. And so from there, I ended up going and getting other opinions. I went to doctors in Houston and Chicago. Um, they did biopsies on my skin and kidneys. Not only did I have lupus, but I had lupus nephritis, um, which means it was also in my kidneys. By now, I was retaining water weight. I had gained about 100 pounds in water weight over the course of like 30 days. I had rashes head to toe. I had lost all of my hair. And so I ended up going through a really depressive state. I really shut down and uh, a friend of mine convinced me to talk to a friend of hers that was a doctor. And she lived over in Abu Dhabi and she said, you know, we really want to help you, my husband and I. I'm going to send him 
to the U.S. from Abu Dhabi. You have to go to Los Angeles because I feel like you aren't happy in Atlanta. And just really trust, A, that you're sick. Accept it. (laughs) Accept that any doctor is going to put you on steroids and all of these medications because I was like really reluctant to do it. I was in such denial. And after... Um, I got to Los Angeles. The rheumatologist here immediately sent me to the emergency room. All the things that they warned me were going to happen and all the doctors I was going to, the steroids, the chemo, everything going on with my, with my kidneys started happening. So in addition to doing steroids and chemotherapy to like stop the inflammation in my kidneys and stop the edema um, and help with the kidney function, I did um, a lot of Eastern medicine. I also did a vegan diet. I did a lot of juicing. I did a lot of mental and spiritual work. And my health just began to really, really turn around. And so um, as I got better, I moved back to Chicago, which is where I'm originally from. And because I still didn't know what was going to happen. And when I moved back there, I continued to improve in my health. But now I had wanted to improve all the damage that was done to my hair and my skin from this disease, but I became hypersensitive to what I was putting in my body. And so I wanted that to reflect also what I was putting on my body prior to getting sick. I never treated my skin like an organ. And so I started just researching products out there and I couldn't find anything um, that I wanted to use, whether from an ingredient perspective or from an aesthetic perspective, like Back then, like what was clean was very granola. And I always say I'm a girl that lives in both worlds. I'm not a granola girl by any means. And so I also was on like 50 different supplements at the time. And I just didn't want what I was using. I didn't want my beauty to feel like medicine. And so I just started researching ingredients and ordering ingredients. I made this first batch in my kitchen, um, which is what is now our Hill Whip Skin Souffle. And I used to gift it to coworkers and um, friends and family, and people would really harass me over it. And it, it hydrated where everything else failed. And I was like, look, I have a job. I don't have time to be making lotion. And as I would run out, I would still try to mix other companies' products to try to get that same moment because I really did not want to order ingredients and then be making this and whipping this up because you had to order like so much just to make one jar. And so I ended up finally being able to fly because when I moved back from LA to Chicago, I had to take a train because at the time I couldn't fly because I risked blood clotting. So when I was finally able to fly, I was going to um, Dubai with my now fiance for my birthday. And we had a layover in Paris. I had compression tights on. So to risk, to limit the risk of blood clots. And when I got to Paris, my legs were so tight and dry and I bought this like amazing extensive cream. And like two seconds later, my skin was so tight and dry. And so that was kind of my aha moment that I really just had something that wasn't out there. And um, about a year, not too long after that, the company that I was with got bought out by Live Nation. And I, um, that was my opportunity to either like go deeper into that space and start my own firm or do something else. And I really had wanted to share my journey with lupus and also share the products that helped me because all of the emotions that I went through with the diagnosis, I knew somebody else had to be have experienced that as well. And I wanted to show them that there is beauty on the other side of your journey. So that is why even when building out the website, I was super transparent with my before pictures, pictures of, you know, when I was sick, when I was in a hospital 
um, with the rashes all over. Um, I just thought that was important to share because I think now when people see me, it's hard to believe that I was in that space at one point. And so that was why I wanted the blog side of the store to be really, um, and the about page to be really, really thoughtful and transparent as well as the products to like really speak to people. But I also wanted them to feel special and beautiful and just not feel like medicine. That was super important to me. I wanted them to feel like something for normal people. Um, because everything else in my life felt like it revolved around movies. Mm, appreciate, you know, I think appreciate sharing a story so far. I want to dive into some of this because I think the story is very, I can imagine for many people going through something like this would be very traumatic and scary and probably lead them into lots of despair, but you came out of this willing to kind of make the most out of it, right? Turn it into, you know, sharing, helping other people. And then of course, starting business behind it. Did you find that was a good natural thing? Like how were you able to kind of pull everything together? No, it wasn't natural at all. Um, I experienced all the depression, all the of the suicidal thoughts that come with a diagnosis like that. I, I had just literally turned 30 years old and thought like my entire life was ahead of me. I'm sorry, I get emotional when I think about it, but um, it really was the people in my life and um, just kind of make strengthening my relationship with God that helped me get on the other side of that, getting to a place of acceptance. And then even having that hope that I could get on the other side of it because I absolutely had that despair. I absolutely had those moments when I was like, what is the point of even living? Um, And then I, I had to have faith and I had people in my life that just like really supported me in getting back to a place of health. And then I also really had to shut down and it, it changed a lot about my life. Like I, ch- my friendship, friends change, you know, you realize who your friends are, are in these moments. And so when you accept that your normal is going to be a little bit different than it was before, I think it becomes easier, but acceptance was like the biggest part of getting to that other side for, for me in particular. Mm. You had mentioned a couple of times about this idea of acceptance. Early on, you you mentioned that the diagnosis was not something that you had accepted. And through a lot of this acceptance, it led you to kind of find yourself on the, the path that, that, that you're on now. Um, what, how do you, and I'm sure that's the same kind of experience that you want a lot of your the people that read your read your your blog, you know, buy the products. You want them to have the same kind of experience. How do you kind of create that kind of or help them uh, find that kind of experience when you are selling a product or you are you have a solution, but at the same time they need to also accept that they have a problem. Do you find that there's like a way to to balance that? That hey, there's a problem that you have, and you have to kind of accept it, and that there's also ways to to solve. Like, how do you make sure you balance those two things? Well, I think the transparency is the most important thing, transparency in my story. I think in even building this business, it probably took me longer to write my story than it did to create the products because it was very difficult for me to share the emotions that I was having. Um, It was because I literally had the thought that like, I'm creating this website. (laughs) I'm telling my deepest, darkest thoughts on, on my about page, on my story. I'm showing pictures that I really probably in any other circumstance would not want anybody to see me in that circumstance, in those situations. And somebody over in Australia is going to be reading this while I'm asleep, like judging me for like the path that I took. Um, 
But I think transparency was just so important because I've had so many people reach out to me and say that they've experienced the same thing. And that's really why I wanted to be so transparent because I was like, I know I can't be the only person that had these feelings um, when you're getting diagnosed with a chronic disease or somebody's telling you that you may have to go on dialysis or that you may lose a kidney or that you're going to live like this for the rest of your life or that you'll be on medication for the rest of your life. I think for me, that was probably the worst part of the journey is that initial um, phase. And so I just think the transparency in my story, and it's like really long, but for somebody that's going through that same experience, I, I just feel like it gives them enough hope to get to a place of acceptance in their own journey and understand that there will be beauty on the other side of that. And then from a product perspective, I think you share the journey through, here's how I want you to feel when you open this. Um, which is why I put like so much thought and detail. I wanted to feel special. I wanted it to feel like a treat for a person that was opening it. I wanted it to feel like a gift to themselves. Um, long before like the this, you know, cliche idea of like self-care, self-care, self-care came along. I just wanted somebody who may have been going through a really bad experience in their life to just feel like something was very, very specially made for them. And with like every detail and every care and every ingredient sourcing and the efficacy, like I thought about all of that because I was creating something for me who had gone through that same thing. Mm. So you mentioned, first of all, leading with transparency into your story. When you were starting out with this, we mentioned that you started the business in, in 2016. How much traction were you getting? Like, were you surprised by the reaction or were you surprised by, uh, you know, people that were paying attention? Like, talk to us more about in 2016 when you launched and you launched with this kind of content, this kind of blog. Like, how quickly were things moving or how long did things take before you felt like there's an audience? So it honestly started off pretty slow. I did have like great support from friends and family. Then I had a lot of people that I knew that like didn't support it all at first. Um, when I was building the brand, I would talk about it or I would show packaging sneak peeks and things that I was working on 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 social media and people would be really excited about it. And then I thought that that was going to trans translate into sales. And it honestly did not. Um, and so it wasn't until I had to like really keep pushing and getting the brand out there, getting in front of press, doing trade shows, doing all the things that was going to get my product in front of people and more people talking about it. And then that is really kind of what catapulted it. And then some of like the retail relationships I got early on um, and press I was able to get early on without having PR and like picking up the story. That was like really huge for driving the traction for the brand. And then also the proof of concept because there were very few like luxury black owned brands as well. And so there was a little bit of apprehension because a lot of brands, um, a lot of black owned brands are like marketed towards um, different, like a, a more economical price point. And so I was in a different space. And so I kind of needed that validation of press and retail to 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 give the brand that I guess that stamp of approval. And I think from there I got a lot of um a lot of traction as well. And I think building the site out well, um, the images that I used, I got product from photography. It's so funny. I obsessed over every little detail down to like the product photography. And I think about it now because the product photographer <laughs> 
that I used when I launched. I still have those same images because they were just so well done. And I probably could not afford the same person now because now she's like shooting for like Burberry and KKW Beauty and like all these places. But when I was working with her, it was before she got there. And so I was able to get just really beautiful content and really do it well done. And I think that that spoke to like just the experience from beginning to end for the brand, right? It's like taking the customer through a journey um, and really showing them that every little detail was like thought out, thought put into. Um, I was had handwritten thank you cards going out with every package. Also creating things that people wanted to share on social media was like super important as well. And so those little details made our customers continue to come back and then also refer us to other like their friends and family or make them want to gift our products. Oh, awesome. So I definitely want to dive into a lot of what you said. And one thing I want to jump back to real quick was around the, this growth. So eventually the business uh, takes off more, the audience grows from it. And you had mentioned that one of the kind of key assets that allowed you to connect so deeply with your with your audience, with your with your customers, and, and build this kind of stickiness with with your customers is this transparency. Now, as the as the brand grows, though, and the audience grows, I think it's there's just a natural tendency to maybe want to pull back a bit, right? Because once the brand grows and bigger, more people are, are watching, it, it's uh, potentially scarier right now. There's more eyeballs on, on you. How do you make sure that doesn't happen? How do you make sure that what got you here, the transparency, you don't you don't give up on? You know what? You're so right. You're 100% right. I for sure have that experience. And what I found myself doing was I kind of pulled back on my personal side. So like, for instance, my personal social media, I just completely stopped posting on it at all because I was really overwhelmed because I was doing the business side and um, the the and handling my personal stuff. So I just really stopped and pretty much focused on the business and I had to find balance because because I was so transparent with my story, I would find a lot of people would be transparent with me and like people would send me DMs or like emails or messages like on Facebook and um, share a lot with me too. And sometimes it does get overwhelming. Um, but sometimes like I found myself like if I need to like step away from social for a little bit, like that's what I'll do. Um, also what I've started to do as of late is learn how to say no to certain things. And when I say saying no to certain things, meaning just certain, you get so many asks, you'll get so many emails, like as a brand, um, the amount of emails you get every day of somebody saying they need this, they need that, whether it's a retailer, whether it's, you know, um, not even just press, of course, but like, I mean, you get so many solicitation emails. Um, and so learning just to say no to things that don't serve your initial vision for the brand, I think is like what I've had to do. And then also like bringing on help to help me manage some of the social side of things to where I still want to engage with my customer. Like what I notice is like when I'm the one speaking, when it's my voice, when it's super authentic, the engagement is there. Um, and so that's like still super important to me. I have customers that, you know, I mean, we have the longest conversations on DM with, but I obviously can't do that with every single person. So it's just learning how to balance that and when to like pull back and like make the space and the time for yourself, because I also still have to manage my own stress and health is like really important. So I can't go back to the place I was. 
I think there's a really important point about how there's a obviously a big opportunity on social media for for brands, especially in your space, to grow. Right, the the kind of uh, you know skincare beauty brand. It's, it's it's Instagram and social media is made for that kind of stuff to thrive. But then there's also this challenge of of uh, not getting kind of sucked into that that world to the point where it becomes stressful. What do you what do you do? Because I think it's a problem a lot for entrepreneurs where again the opportunity is there, but it's too opportune, right? It's just too present right. for you. How do you make sure that? Well, I guess what do you do to make sure that a uh, you kind of you kind of talked about how you you balance it back, but how do you even know when it's time to say, hey, you know what, it's time to kind of pull back a bit? Yeah. So I think when um, for me, I have to gauge like health-wise and personally, like the space I'm in and when I'm feeling like if, if I've gone through this phase of where I feel like I've given too much of myself and I'm also like um, a bit of an introvert. So that makes it really hard in this space too, because you kind of have to be like, especially with indie brands, they want to see the founder. They want you to be in their face. And I'm not typically that person. I've always been behind the scenes. And so I struggle with, you know, making the content and getting in front um, and making the videos and constantly talking to people. I struggle with that. Um, So I do it within reason. And when it's enough for me, meaning if I feel like it's too much, I step back. If I need to take up some time off social media, I do. Now I finally have somebody who helps me with social. So I don't, I'm okay if I don't check in for a couple of days. Um, and then I also went through a period this summer where I had just been completely overwhelmed. And I actually didn't post for before I had found like the right person. Because at one point I had somebody, but it just was completely not the right voice. And they did not get the vision for the brand at all. And it reflected in our engagement. But I literally took a couple of months off social media this summer to really, really focus on my health because I had just got gotten completely overwhelmed like over the last two years of like building the brand. Because I would think when, you, when you're a small indie brand, you feel like every opportunity is your make or break. And so I had to get out of that mindset that this one opportunity, right, this one podcast, this one interview, this one gifting suite, this one, <laughs> you know, giveaway is going to be the thing that like makes my brand. It's like I built a sustainable brand that, you know, the products speak for themselves. And if I need to take care of my like mental and physical health, then I need to take the time to do that. And so now really this last year has given me the opportunity to do that without like apologizing for it because my health was declining due to trying to meet the demand of the brand. Um, and so really the most important thing I think is just like, I think for me, I waited a little bit longer than I should have to get the right, I guess, people in place to like help me. Cause when you are doing every single thing by yourself and I was doing every single thing by myself, it just became too overwhelming. And, and so I know that like your customer, you know, will hold space for you. If your product is like truly a great product, right? Um, if you've built something that resonates with them, they're going to hold space for you. And that was something that I had to trust in. And the reality is if I didn't, and then my health, like there was no brand without me. So if I let my health decline, trying to meet the demands of the brand, it was all for nothing anyway. So I just um, became more comfortable stepping away when I felt like I needed to step away and take the time on social media and not be on there all day. Because Easily, you can spend a day just posting stories and posting and then dialoguing back and forth and then liking stuff and responding to comments and then answering DMs. 
And then I, I have to ignore a lot of DMs too, because you'll get <laughs> all these people's like, oh, we can increase your ROI by this. And I mean, then you have like a million influencers in your DM that are like, hey, send us product. And then you have to vet like who's a real influencer and who's someone that's just like in a pod that is making it look like they have authentic engagement. You know, it's like all these little things you have to pay attention to, but doing them on your time because the reality is that's one of the reasons you're in business too, right? You don't work for somebody else. I have to remind myself that every single day that like, you know what? If I need to get to this tomorrow, I can get to it tomorrow, right? And I look at my to-do list now and I say, okay, what absolutely has to get done today? What can wait till tomorrow? Because again, I have to keep my health in mind. Yeah, you know what, what I'm hearing from this too is that you you you're certainly going through. I think a lot of the same struggles that a lot of entrepreneurs that might be listening also going through, which is that there's this stage that you get to where you're just kind of become like a human to do list for people, right? You kind of being pulled, you're kind of being maybe um, like directly pulled in some ways, indirectly too, where you're starting to see, oh, there's someone in this space doing this, or there's someone doing that. I should be doing that too, and then eventually you kind of start losing that uh, the talk that you give to yourself or about what decisions you should be making and instead just kind of, you know, again, responding, reacting a lot. So what, what, what kind of, what, what's worked for you there to make sure that that doesn't happen or like at least recognizing that, that, that is happening and starting to pull back from it so that you're not just kind of, again, answering to other people or reacting to other things all the time. Sure. So one of the things I do is, so like all of um, our products, I formulated myself and I have formulated them from a place of what can't I find? What do I feel like is missing? What haven't I found that I'm obsessed with like in this space, right? So that's one thing I do. I keep my head down, like when I'm formulating and trying to run my brand, because it's easy to look at other brands and see what they're doing and feel like you have to play catch up and do exactly what they're doing. And a lot of this is like smoke and mirrors, right? There's a lot of brands that look at me. It's like, oh my gosh, this brand is XYZ. And then I'm looking at a lot of brands like, oh my gosh, this brand is XYZ. And mind you, that entrepreneur might be struggling or somebody may look at me and then I may be struggling in some areas, right? Because on social media and stuff, there's like this perfect picture and image. So um, me now having been in business for a few years, I know that. And so I don't look at other brands with this with that same sort of envy um, or trying to do exactly what they're doing because we're different brands. We have different visions. I started my brand for a totally different reason than they may have started their brand for. And so um, I just don't get distracted by what other brands are doing, especially because I've had other brands like knock things off about my brand, whether it's copy on my website or specific products or something like that. And I know how it makes my blood boil. So I'm conscious not as to not do that. And then why do I need to create what somebody else has already created? It's important for me to create something unique and offer like our customers something unique that like I really put my heart and soul into because if I do something that's disingenuous to me or create a product that doesn't mean anything to me, how do I then even sell that? Like the products that I can talk about and sell night and day and believe in so much, they have to come from a place of need. There's an ingredient in there that I love for whatever reason. There's like so much passion and love this went into that product. It's, I probably reformulated it 26 different times to get to the exact product that I wanted to create. So how do I do that if I'm paying attention to what every other brand is doing or trying to create what somebody else has already made? 
Mm. Yeah, I think there's something important there where uh, there's this um, maybe desire for a cash grab, right? How do I get, how do I maximize, how do I get maximized sales? How do I get as much as possible? And then you start optimizing for that. And one thing you mentioned here was about how uh, you said, how do, how do I sell something that I don't actually believe in? And I think it's important because I think it's a, a lesson that more seasoned entrepreneurs like you have learned, uh, which is that you're kind of doing yourself a favor by believing in your brand by creating a a product that you actually believe in because it makes the selling part so much easier and maybe less um maybe even more shameful right i think a lot of times you're just kind of pushing things that you don't believe in but you believe in it i think it makes the the job much easier and you had mentioned too about how one thing that you you've gotten better at is just saying no more and i think it's important to uh talk about this kind of myth about the one big break right the secret key to success and i you know one thing that i have learned by talking to entrepreneurs like you is just that a lot of the success comes from kind of mundane daily putting in the work kind of things and not these yeah big breaks and i want to talk about some of those things the first thing you had talked about was this idea about how do you um how do you kind of delegate how do you scale scale yourself out and one thing you talked about was around the content and you had mentioned about how uh one of the first people that you had hired for this was it wasn't the right voice didn't get the vision i think this is important when you again you're like an independent brand you're like a startup and and you start off as the face of the brand and now you want you need help there i think uh, it's a big struggle for a lot of, again, more creative entrepreneurs, more content-driven entrepreneurs, more kind of, um, you know, again, the face of the brand. Talk to us about that experience. Like, how did you eventually find the right, the right voice, or how did you find the the team or the person that could, you know, sound like you or sound like what you wanted the vision of the brand to be? Right. I think the first thing. So I, I had originally found someone like closer to when I launched the brand and they worked with, um, I had met a friend or now a friend and she had a brand as well. So they they did the social media for her brand and I thought it looked great. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to give her a try too. And it was like totally the wrong voice, right. For my brand. So it just goes back to doing like what's best for your brand and not what's working for another brand, especially if you're like extremely different from each other. And so um, I went back to doing the social media like for quite some time. And then recently, um, it's so funny, I just kind of like put out into the universe, like, here's exactly what I'm looking for. And I was able to find somebody that they kind of fell into my lap through someone I knew. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this would be the perfect fit. But it also was important that they were kind of someone who takes direction, but then also like has a fresh perspective, right? So um, sometimes people come in and they're like, well, this is what worked for this brand. Um, And then they try to do that for your brand, even though your brands are truly different. And then the way I was able to find somebody was just like, they had a fresh perspective, like in the beauty space. And so um, the way we work oftentimes is like, they'll send me, we kind of work together on like laying out the feed and then they'll send me like, you know, what they're thinking of saying. Sometimes it's perfect. Sometimes I'm tweaking it to make it sound like more like my voice or because I obviously like know the products in and out better. And so then they eventually don't need me to that input from me as much. And then certain things where it's like specifically, I want it to come from me, then I'll write exactly what I want to write. And, you know, but um, I eventually found the person through 
like a mutual friend of mine. And that's how I found I, I found some of like the best people because also as an independent brand, it's like really difficult to go to companies who like run social media. The numbers that they charge <laughs> are insane and it can absolutely be a full-time job. I get that, but I just didn't have the bandwidth or like the financial um, space to hire a person, you know, put somebody on a retainer for like $7,000 a month for social media, you know, especially with all the algorithm changes. Right. So, um, for me, I found that right person through word of mouth, as far as like other team members, um, I have found people through like saying on social media, like, Hey, we're looking for this. And somebody's sending me emails. Um, I'm also a person that likes to work with people that I'm like comfortable with and can like easily talk to. And so, um, I found a lot of the people that are on the team and I use quite a few like contractors as well, or like part-time contractors that want me to work on this, want me to work on that. And I've honestly found them through other relationships I now have in the beauty industry because now I've been in the space for going on five years. So I have a lot of relationships and I can reach out to somebody and say, um, you know, do you know somebody who works on this? And I can get a couple of people to choose from. That has also been helpful for me because I have hired a few people that I just coldly found and they didn't end up being the right fit. Or like the person who can, for instance, do... SEO for a fitness company might not be the right person to do it for a beauty company. So those are just kind of all learning lessons that I've figured out as I've gone. Mm. So you mentioned one thing that was helpful, and I'm assuming in the, the this this social media role, but then also in other roles, is someone that can take direction. Is this something you can tell from the outside, or is it only possible to learn? No, I think sometimes you don't find that until you try the person out. Like I did have one person that um, was just super, super combative. And I know that I'm that person because this is literally my baby. So I have done, and I've done every single role in this business. There isn't a thing that I haven't done. So I kind of know exactly how I want it to be done. But I also know I have so much things to learn and rooms to grow as well. So I want somebody with some experience that can help me take it, take it to the next level. But with that being said, like I've had someone that, um, just was so like headstrong on like their vision and ideas and took like no direction whatsoever. And so every conversation was like this battle. I was like, well, can you look at it like this? And it's just like, well, I did it like this and everything was like super defensive. And so for me, that wasn't a good fit because um, while they may have had like great experience in other areas um, in this space, it just, you know, it wasn't, we weren't getting anywhere. And what I ended up being was like almost, they almost ended up being like a sonographer where I'm doing, still doing all the work. I'm telling you everything to write, everything that's hype. And then it gets to this point where I may as well do it. Like I need someone to free things up off of me, kind of just take control. I need an independent thinker. I think that's so important for like small brands because, you know, as founders, we're spread so incredibly thin. So you need somebody that can just pick something up and take it and run with it. And then you tweak it if necessary or you give your feedback. But then if you're finding yourself still doing everything that you brought them on to do, then it's just not going to work. 
Yeah, and you kind of talk about two different almost stages of this on, of this uh, employee where first they're combative and then eventually they you are just I sound like they relented but you're doing all of the the thinking for them and I think it's important that when you do have someone that seems oh they have all this experience and they've had all this success but you just don't mesh with them I think it's important to listen to that because it, it becomes a real energy drain where you're you losing energy dealing with that situation and not focus elsewhere, right? Because everything is, you know, finite. You can't just, it, there's a cost to having to to deal with, uh, you know, a, a relationship, a working relationship that just is not the right fit. Yeah. Yeah. And you had mentioned the, you know, one thing for, for someone that is able to take direction, is coachable and it, it, and is willing to to learn a vision. It sounds like the best way it's worked for you is kind of almost like learning on the job. They have a, a task and then you kind of course correct and tweak. And that's probably more on the on the on the more frequent end at first. And then as they learn more about what works for you, eventually they become almost a clone of you and you don't have to do as much. And then I can trust them, right? I can just trust that I don't have to oversee every little thing. I can trust that they're handling things. I don't need to be copied on every email. Like that's the ideal scenario for for me um, is that I can just trust them to get the job done. And, um, you know, and then they, they have to trust themselves as well, right? They have to trust that they can do it without needing to have me involved in that every single step of the way. Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes to let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm. So one thing to be mentioned when I first kicked off the show was that this was a black-owned luxury brand. And you had mentioned that, and you had mentioned to us that there were challenges with this, where both in I sound like in, in retail for sure, but then also maybe and also the the press was not just didn't maybe get the the, the combination. Talk to us more about that specific struggle. So I think not necessarily in retail. I feel like in terms of in retail, I had really no issues with retail. I got into Neiman Marcus probably nine months after launching. I met the buyers like six months after launching at a trade show, got in like nine months after, um, got into Bergdorf's after that and have um, done pop-ups with Nordstrom and then now also in Blue Mercury and Credo. So retail has been like amazing for the brand to get the brand in front of like their customers. We could, again, as a small brand, I didn't have like this huge marketing team to like really get me out there. Also, the brand was really well received by press. And I think those retail partnerships and then the press, because we've had a ton of press, Allure Best of Beauty Awards without ever having a PR firm. And those things helped validate us and helped our e-commerce. Um, but in terms of like being um, a Black-owned brand, just in e-commerce, the retail really helped validate us because sometimes people see you as if, you, if you're on e-commerce, they might think, oh, you're, you're just an Instagram brand or like, why am I paying for like paying this much for this, you know? But then when you're in a retailer like a Neiman Marcus or a Bergdorf's, it gives the validation that, okay, this makes sense. This is like proven, you know what I'm saying? Um, but we actually have been very fortunate as far as press goes um, and have had a ton of press. So that has been a, a complete lesson for us. But when I say as a Black-owned brand, as a luxury black, Black-owned brand, you almost have something to prove. Like I had to be... a there could be like no half stepping. Like a lot of people would be like, what's taking so long to launch? It probably took me like 18 months to get the brand launched um, and just really get it perfect. And people were like, well, what's taking so long? Like 
it should be done already. And I'm like, just know I have everything has to be on point. And that's not necessarily the case. If I was doing something at a more economical price point, everybody's not going to be paying attention to like every little detail. But because I was doing it at a luxury price point as a prestige brand, also as a black owned brand, it's going to be judged weighted way more heavily um, in terms of like e-commerce and when I launch, and that's including even to my own friends and family, right? Like when I say on social media, like, oh, I'm creating a brand, like hope you guys shop with me. And then I launch it and they're like, oh, this costs, you know, $80. Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> um, and I experienced that 1000%. I experienced that a lot. And so retail really gave me like the validation and the press also gave me the validation that I needed to where people don't question that as much now that, and then also I have like the proof of concept. I have the reviews and I have the user generated content to back up like that these products do exactly what, you know, we said they would. Yeah. So, so the, the, the success in getting to those retail outlets and also the press came pretty early in, in your business. And I can, I can see what you mean by this preconceived notion or they kind of put you in a box about what they should expect when they come see your, your website where the product should be priced more economically or rushed more out the door. But you, you took a much more luxury kind of premium approach to all of it. And again, the press and the retail helped and it came pretty early on. And you mentioned nowadays the reviews and the, the kind of user-generated content already helps validate as well. Was there anything else in there that, that helped a lot to kind of break through this, again, the, the, this maybe prejudgment about what the product should cost or what whether it should be more economical versus luxury or not? Like Anything else helped along the way that, uh, that maybe might be more accessible maybe to a, a smaller or a newer brand? Sure. I think um, social media views, um, the, the, the quality of the content, right? Quality of the packaging, the quality of the... And, I, and, and even when I say that, like my packaging, yes, it is expensive, but there's a lot of prestige brands that don't have expensive pro- packaging. And so therefore that packaging can similarly be used for a more economical price point brand, right? Um, so... It really is not, it really is a look, right? There's an aesthetic. And so you have to have an eye or you have to like have someone or get a designer, somebody that like has the right eye to give your brand that look that it looks like a real brand and it doesn't look like, you know, you just slap the label on and you're just trying to get it out there. Not that that's necessarily like a wrong approach, but it reflects on like how people receive your brand. The other thing is too, like, one of the things I always say is it's okay to launch. Like if I could do anything all over again, I would have launched with one SKU and made all my mistakes with that SKU from in terms of like packaging because I went through three different box suppliers and everything else. But to really answer your question, I think social media, user-generated content, like having other people talk about your brand on their stories, on their feeds um, is something that's amazing. And that's something we've gotten as well. Whereas like we didn't pay influencers to do we haven't really typically worked with influencers. We've sent products to like some people, um, but a lot of times like it's a hit or miss if they're going to post it or not. And for a small brand just launching, like that was like a hard pill to swallow to learn those lessons for me because it cost me a lot of money. Like, you know, these big brands are paying like 20 cents for a full product and they have hundreds of thousands to just ship out. And I'm like, I've won <laughs> and then I could have sold it if you're not going to post it. Like that's how I would think. And so, um, but it really was 
customers, like customers being loyal to the brand, customers talking about it, posting about it, and just really supporting you and wanting to see you win. Like every time there's a post of like, what's your favorite brand? What's your favorite butter? Like we have customers that are tagging us, like, right. They're helping people discover us. And so I think, and I have customers that have ordered like 15 times, 20 something times. Like those are the people that are really going to help grow your brand and support your brand. Those are the customers that are going to ask retailers, tell retailers they want to see you there. Um, those are the ones that are going to post you on social media and want to be talked about or want to talk about your brand. So I feel like that our customers have just been so supportive and important in growing the brand and talking about it because once they make that content on social, then you can reuse it and reuse it and reuse it. You can put it on your website. You can put it um, um, you can put it on your website. You can put it, repost it on your social media and your stories. You can make posts with it. You have to just be creative in ways to like say what other people are saying, because I feel like potential customers don't want to feel like you're the only one talking about your brand either. They want to know that somebody else used it. So reviews on your website is super duper important. Um, like that's probably the most important app or configuration you can have in your store is reviews. Um, because I'm that person, like I don't shop, I don't buy anything without a review. I don't care what it is. It could be a dollar. Like I want to see what other people are saying about it, even if I may not be writing reviews. And I feel like a lot of people shop like that, especially for brands that they can only find online, right? That there may not be press about, that they may not be able to find in a store. It's important to have um, user-generated content and reviews for your products. And I think that's probably the most important thing. Now, I want to talk about something that might be even more uh, directly in control, which is the idea of building a luxury brand. And how do you, what does that, what does that mean? How do you capture luxuries? Talk to us more about maybe what you've learned along the way about what has helped and what hasn't, maybe mistakes that you made along the way to try to capture this kind of aura of luxury within a brand. Sure. So I think first I'll say, the reason why I wanted to create a lot, it was important for me to create a luxury black owned brand because I felt like there weren't any. And I bought luxury. I shopped in these stores and I didn't buy my beauty and drug stores. Um, and so I wanted, I felt like if I shopped in these retailers, I should be able to sell in these retailers, right? So that was very important to me because I hadn't seen it done. And I felt like a lot of beauty and products that were marketed towards um, minorities and black women were, you know, um, were more the economical brands. And I personally maybe didn't really love the packaging or like the experience I had in terms of, cause packaging is really important to me. <laughs> like I'm that person where I wanted to look good on my counter. You know, I just want the whole experience. So in addition to the efficacy, like all of that's important to me. And so in creating a luxury brand, like some of the things I did was obviously packaging is super, super important. Um, the weight and feel of your jars, having glass and not using plastic is super important. A secondary box is super important. Um, the design of everything, right? It should be really simple and clean. It should not be super busy. That's also really important. Like pay attention to what you're seeing on the shelves and like these retailers you want to be in. So if you want to be in like a Target or a CVS, there's nothing wrong with that. Pay attention to what products look like that. But even those products have a more elevated look now. The things that are launching now, like if you look at Kristen S and Harry's, like these brands that are even in, you know, Target have a very elevated feel and look to them. Um, and so for me, 
I wanted to have like this again, full sensorial experience. I wanted Beneath Your Mask to appeal to every single sense. So not only scent, um, from an ingredient perspective, I wanted to source really beautiful, exotic ingredients that I was, wasn't seeing in every single product. But I also source from a perspective of efficacy, right? So like one, um, say for instance, like barbecue oil is not going to be equal to another, right? It depends on like where it's sourced from, how it's filtered, all of those things. So I compare, even when I narrow down on my formula, I would compare all these different like ingredient sources to make sure that I was using the best of the best. And so that really contributes to the efficacy of the product. Um, Also, I did like a custom shipping box and custom tissue paper and a custom thank you card. So a lot of like custom aspects in there to like give you that um, total experience that when you receive the box, you just feel like you treated yourself to something. You feel like you, um, you know, you're opening a gift to yourself or to someone else. And so that's why the brand is also like super giftable. But to me, that like speaks to the luxury experience. Yeah. So, so you talked a lot about the, the, how to make sure that the customer, once they receive the product, recognizes luxury, recognizes worth the price. How do you get the first time customers that have never held your product, that don't know the weight of it, that don't know about maybe have a spend of time looking at the ingredients or feeling the products. How do you make sure that they give your product a chance when they see a price point that is in the premium, is in a luxury price point? Sure. So, you know, price point is super relative to so many people. I, I did an event at, at Neiman Marcus one time. And so our, our Hill Whip Skin Souffle, the jar version of it is $80. And the person's like, oh, that's it, honey? oh, my cream costs $1,000, right? So to that person, my product is inexpensive, right? And then to somebody else, it's expensive. So luxury and expensive and price points are all relative, first of all, right? Um, Secondly, I think that the website and going back to like the product photography, the layout of it, all of that, all of those things aesthetically like are things that speak to me. So I've been on websites where, I thought a brand was beautiful and I thought their website was awful and I probably would never order something just because of like the experience on their site. Right. So on beneath your mask, it was important to me to have like a beautiful, well done website. Um, and I did that in a cost effective way, really. My, my products, um, like my product photography was on the highest, it honestly wasn't even high back then. It would be really high right now. But I also picked a theme that looked great. I found a great developer that ideally they would have wanted me to build a custom site. But I said, I knew exactly how I wanted things to look. And so they were able to do that within a standard price point versus charging me like $5,000 per page. And I was able to get my website done for um, way less than that because... I knew I had the vision myself. So when you go into something and you're just telling somebody put something together for me, that's going to always cost you way more than if you know exactly what you want. Right. So for that person who never experienced beneath your mask somehow ends up on the website. um, The first thing they're going to see is like beautiful packaging. Um, They're going to see an amazing story. They're going to see beautiful product photography. They're going to see an elevated layout. And then when they go on the product page and if the pricing is tied to them, they're going to then decide if it's worth it to them. Right. And I think the first thing they're going to do is see 
the product description, but then also um, the reviews. Again, the reviews are going to really help um, sell your product, right? If a person is on the fence or if they have a specific issue that they're looking for something for. Because like I said, price point is relative. So to some people, it may not be expensive at all. And to some people, it may be on the higher price point. But if it works, they're willing to pay for it. And so when they see 100 plus reviews saying that something works, then they're willing to like invest in themselves. Mm. Now we'll talk about some tactical things about the website and it, due to the, the, the popularity and demand of your products, a bunch are, are currently sold out. I'd like to hear more about the benefit of listing sold out products. Like what, what have you found useful about showing products that are currently sold out? Sure. So <laughs> we absolutely would love to have everything in stock, but in, t- in trying to meet the demand, we did a, we've been transitioning manufacturing and so it's taken a little bit longer than we hoped. Um, but with that being said, it just, it can create more demand. You just don't want them sold out for too long, right? Because then people potentially move on or like they're over it or they try to find a replacement or they get frustrated, right? So um, sometimes there is like a hype around sold out products. It does create this frenzy of when they're back in stock, people order or like people order multiple. Um, so there have been times where we've had to limit how many a person can order based on our inventory because with us having retail partners, it's like we, we have to supply them and we have to supply our site. So what we experienced in this last year was either our retail partners had the stock and we didn't or we had the stock and they didn't. And so what we're doing now that we finally have like all the manufacturing in place and should be fully restocked in the next few weeks is we want to have everybody be able to have the supply. And then I've also had to hold off on going into any other partners because the most important thing is like making sure our existing retail partners have inventory before we, you know, launch anywhere else, because I think that's just like doing good business. But um, there does come like some, somewhat of a frenzy with you having sold out products and then people being more eager to find them. What it does do though, also it it drives traffic to our retail partners. So sometimes like what I've done before is if we had a ton of in stock notifications for a product and a retail partner had it, then I would just send the traffic there um, just so that, you know, people aren't waiting so long or they can get it. A lot of times people will email us, Hey, when will this be back in stock? And we may say, we'll have it in about three weeks, but here it's available here. And I've also done that on Instagram recently. People have been asking for specific products and I send them a link and I say, but you can get it, you know, at these three retailers and I'll send them the link to the exact product link because I don't want people to have to wait if it's something that they consistently use. Um, If it's something that I don't want them to be out of, I don't want them to be out of stock too long. I don't want them to go find a replacement. So um, that out of stock is like a fine line because you don't want to be out of stock for, for, for too long. Yeah. And one thing I noticed too, was that you do have the ability to be notified when the product comes back in stock. Does that work well? Do people sign up for that at their email or SMS to, to get notified when the product is back? It absolutely does. Um, and it, those people are getting notified first because that, that is automatic. Um, and so what happens is as soon as we restock, they'll get the notification. Then we'll send a newsletter to our entire database for the people who didn't get notified, but maybe want to want to shop. And then we'll notify people like on social media, um, just so that, you know, people will, people will know when things are back in stock. But the back in stock app is super important, especially if you're consistently selling out of things. 
So the back in stock app is what you use. Are there any other apps that you rely on either on Shopify or off Shopify to help run the business? Clavio for our newsletters has been amazing. Um, Yoko for our reviews. And we're possibly switching to another review platform. But again, I think the review platform is the most important app that we have integrated. We use um, the ads bar. I think it's called Hextom. And so that... um, that's the little bar we keep at the top of our site. So that allows us to update, especially as we have inventory issues. Because you may have people that just periodically come to the stock site and you want to say, okay, Hill is back in stock. Or, um, you know, we're offering, like say, we're offering a different shipping promotion or free shipping. Or if we have a special code for like a gift of purchase, we don't do discounts except for Black Friday. But um, like if we have anything else going on, we'll add that to the top and it's called quick announcement bar actually it used to be called hexcom but it's called quick announcement bar and so that has been um super easy awesome so beneath your mass.com is a website and i'll leave you this last question what do you think is going to be the most important thing for you to personally focus on over the next year the most important thing for us to focus on now that we finally have like all the manufacturing in place and we'll have inventory is now like re-engaging because we've you know lessen the newsletters and all the things because we haven't really had the inventory right now. So right now it's like re-engaging back with our customers, sending consistent newsletters, and then beefing up like SEO as well as starting to do ads to like drive traffic to the site. But those are things that we haven't been able to do because we will always have, even when we restock, the inventory would go so fast. So we never really had the opportunity to run ads or anything because we didn't have the inventory to support support it. So now that we will, um, our goal now is to just pull first onto like driving traffic to the site and then also to and just creating a, de- a demand for the brand that where people are either going to our site or our retailers and just finding the product wherever it is. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your experience, Dana. Thank you so much for having me, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.